in the beginning of the book of Acts, almost like it's one long story that he chose to uh, separate into two volumes. Both of them cover about 33 years of history. Both of them, incidentally, fit almost exactly into the length of a common scroll, uh, and, they, and they together comprise 24% of the entire New Testament. And so they're very important. They are eyewitness accounts. They were painstakingly recorded so that they would stand the test of time as they have. And so this morning, we're going to read it, then we're going to watch a short uh, visualization of how it might have happened, and then we're going to study it together this morning. And something that we're doing through this uh, series is uh, just inviting different of you to come up and lead us in the reading of the Scripture. And so this morning, I want to invite Dina Zellers to come. She's going to read for us Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And uh, she's going to come and share that with us this morning. So if you've got it in your Bible, you can follow along. If not, you've got two other options. You can follow along on the screen. Or you can uh, get out your handout that's inside of your bulletin. If you're a note taker or you like to kind of follow along with the structure, that's available for you as well. Hi, good morning. Here, come share with us. I'm Dina Zellers. And back in February, um, my niece Christine invited me to come to Echo for the first time. And shortly after that, I knew this had to be my church home. I know. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, 1 to 13. The Holy Spirit comes. On the day of Pentecost, all believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. They had heard the loud noise. Everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Give her a hand for nailing all those names. That was amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Dina. Poor Dina, last week we gave Kirk the passage that had all the long, crazy names too. There's some names in the Bible. There's some tough passages, but she, wow, that was, a, that was extremely impressive. So um, this passage at face value is strange and startling completely. In fact, I don't, it's probably one of the most studied uh, passages in all of the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Um, Acts chapter 1, we have Jesus, we have the, you know, the record of what Jesus was doing for the 40 days between when he rose from the dead and when he then ascended and went up into heaven. We have what he was doing. And it culminates with the last thing he says to his disciples, he says, or apostles now he calls them, he says, don't leave Jerusalem wait there, I'm going to send to you the promised power through the Holy Spirit. And then we have 10 days from when he ascends to Acts chapter 2. We covered that 10-day period last week. Today we're really just looking at the beginning. Uh, We're not going to look at the whole day this week, but just really just a couple hours, maybe just a couple moments on uh, this particular day in the Jewish calendar. So chapter 1, Jesus says, if I go to heaven, the proof that I'm still with you and still among you, the proof that it's time for you to go start doing your assignment of telling people everywhere about the kingdom of God and about about repentance, about good news through the gospel. The time to begin is after I send you the promise. And then here in Acts chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, we see Jesus sending the promised Holy Spirit. And it happened in a startling, unexpected, historic, dramatic fashion right in the epicenter, the urban epicenter of the city of Jerusalem. So that's what it read like. That's the Bible we're starting with. 
Some of you are visual learners like me, and so what I want to do now is show you a visual representation through uh, the, the team at the Bible Project. Just Again, this is just it's an animated representation of uh, how these events might have looked uh, back in that original day. So let's check this out together. This is exciting stuff, and the disciples are ready to go tell the world. But then Jesus tells them to wait and to stay in Jerusalem until they receive a new kind of power so they can be faithful witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom. Then he says that their mission is going to begin in Jerusalem, then move out to Judea and Samaria, and then from there out into the nations. It's like a road map for the whole book of Acts. Then the disciples saw Jesus enthroned as king of all creation. So the disciples wait, wondering when this power is going to come. And then comes the time of Pentecost. So this is an ancient Israelite festival during the early summer, and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come back to Jerusalem from all over the world, all these different languages and cultures colliding in the city. And the disciples are together in a house, which is suddenly filled with rushing wind along with fire. Fire splinters off into tongues of fire hovering over people's heads. What's this all about? Yeah, so Luke is tapping into a repeated Old Testament theme. When God's presence showed up similarly at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with Israel and gave them the Ten Commandments. Then later, when God's glory came in a pillar of fire, it filled the tabernacle when he came to live among them. That was just one pillar of fire, not many. Exactly. Luke's making an important point here. This is God's personal temple presence, God's spirit that was foretold by Israel's prophets. And now it's come to take up residence in the new temple of Jesus' body, that is, his people. They've become little mobile temples where God now dwells. And they start to tell stories about Jesus, but they're speaking in languages that they didn't know before, yet all the visitors can understand them. What's this all about? Yeah, what is this all about? And like I said, um, this passage has been studied by the who's who list of people over the last 2,000 years who have studied the Bible and written their commentaries and their insights on what went on. And uh, of course, you know, us being an, an affiliated with the Assemblies of God Church, this passage is uh, critical in the Assemblies of God movement back into the early 1900s. It helped us get some insight to explain some experiences that people were uh, encountering in California. But what's interesting, and I've, I've started to do this, uh, when I started studying this passage a couple weeks ago in anticipation of today, I, um, I said, God, I don't want to throw away everything that I've already learned or thought or studied about this passage. I've probably studied this as much as any single passage in the Bible. I said, but I want to see it with new eyes, and I want to be I want to have clear understanding, clearer understanding than I've ever had before about what's going on here. And so I started down that trail and was just doing some study myself, the Holy Spirit, my Bible. As I was getting down there, uh, kind of organizing my thoughts, I then started saying, all right, I'm going to jump into the swimming pool of starting to read what other people have written about this passage. And I looked at C.S. Lewis and Charles Spurgeon and A.W. Tozer and a lot of dead people, right? You know, like a lot of... (laughs) I started there. I started going through. I, one of my addictions is out-of-print commentaries and, and collections of sermons from the 1800s and 1900s. I, I love reading what all these anonymous, unnamed people who didn't have the advantage of all this information just got when they were studying the Bible out of the depth of their relationship with Jesus. I started reading through some of my volumes of those things. I started looking at more modern uh, people like Bishop Jakes and, and uh, Tony Evans and uh, Rod Parsley. I mean, I'm trying to go all over the map, and I'm just the names that I'm naming. I know a lot of you have opinions. You know, I, I'm, just, I'm just looking at the body of people that I have access to what they've written, John MacArthur and others, and here's what I can tell you. Here's the summary. None of them get it all exactly aligned with one another. In other words, there's not like one common repeated pattern. I, I've read what Dr. George O. Wood wrote about and talked about. I listened to as many of his sermons from the 70s and the 80s as I could to get his understanding. He was one of the, the leading voices of the Assemblies of God for most of his career. He was our general superintendent, has written extensively, one of the most educated men on the face of the planet. Um, in one of his messages, he refers to conversations he had with some of the founders of the Assemblies of God, Brother Flowers and others. And so I say all that to say I have overprepared for uh, studying this passage. And if I were trying to say, here's the one thing they all agree on, um, that would be hard to boil it down. But what they would agree on is that it happened the way that Luke recorded it. They would agree on that. And so what I'm going to share with you this morning wouldn't necessarily be found in any one of those commentaries, nor was I trying to create 
it's just kind of a sanity check to say, um, am I way off in left or right field? Uh, but one thing I do know, listening to all of them, is go back to the text. And if you let the Bible be its own interpreter, it's the very best thing. If you read and study the Bible from cover to cover, it's pretty good at interpreting itself. And one thing I do know is that the first five words of this passage tell us you've got to understand the calendar. The first five words of this passage say that everything to understand about Acts chapter 2 is bound up, it's cinched up inside your understanding of calendar. Now finish this sentence for me. Can you finish the sentence for me? If my personal calendar were suddenly to vaporize and disappear irretrievably from the planet forever, I would be lost. <laughs> okay? Some of you would celebrate for a day or two. For a day or two, you'd celebrate. I mean, didn't you want to do that before? If you keep your calendar like, say you keep it in your phone or it's in the cloud, this mysterious cloud where everything in life exists now. You just want to take your phone and forget the calendar and you throw it across your yard, right? And then two days later, you're like, I better go pick that up. I'm lost. Now, seriously, what would you do if your weekly calendar vanished? Probably different answers all over the room. For some of you who absolutely have to live by appointments and meetings and soccer practices and recitals and this and that, and you don't try and hold it in your head, you write it down or you type it in or you save it. Uh, some of you still have something called a day planner. That's okay. I, I bought one right out of college. I went to Staples with my very first uh, check that I got as a full-time pastor. I went to Staples and the first thing I bought was a day runner. I didn't have anything to write in it. I had no contacts to put in there. I had no meetings. I just wanted to have the appearance of having a busy schedule, right? There's a book with, a, you know, some of you don't even know what it is. Google it on your smartphone. You can find out what a day runner is. You can probably buy one on eBay for $90 now. It's like a vintage collectible. But uh, if it disappeared irretrievably, some of us would be completely, totally disconnected and lost on a weekly basis. Others of us would be like, that is my dream, to live without a calendar. And I know what we're saying when we say that I don't want to feel like I'm a prisoner to being everywhere everybody tells me I have to be. Listen, when, I've, when I first started in ministry, I was a single guy. I was engaged to be married. I had no kids. I had an 800-square-foot apartment. My life was relatively simple. I didn't really need a complex calendar. 20-some-odd years later, I'm married. I've got two boys. I'm the lead pastor of a church. I volunteer in different organizations. I have all kinds of commitments I have to keep. I literally, I have to, when my wife says, can you be home to grill burgers on this particular night? If I don't put it in my calendar, I'm in deep deep trouble because if you give your word to your wife you're handling dinner one night and you don't handle it there's no there's no joy in Camelot that evening right you know like you got to know so we track our calendar you know it helps keeps us organized tells us where we're supposed to be when we're supposed to be there tells you kind of you need to remember sometimes how to dress have you ever forgotten something and in the middle of the day you had to readjust but you weren't dressed appropriately for what you had to readjust to I'll leave that alone for a while Let you think about that. But I mean, calendar tells you, okay, today I need to look this way. I'm going to an event over here and I need to dress that way. And if I need to address that way for the wedding on Saturday, that means I need to eat nothing the week before, so I need to know that, right? <laughs> or I need to go buy something new, so I need to know that. It tells us things like that. It tells us important dates you need to remember. Birthdays, anniver <clears throat> anniversaries. And the more people in your life that are depending upon you to remember those things or else deeply offend them forever and never forgive you, the more likely it is you need a calendar. Calendars also help us on an annual basis. I know some of you don't realize this, but your knowing where we are in the annual calendar can also be helpful. It tells us when seasons begin and seasons end. And some of you are like, well, just go outside and look. Well, sometimes that's reliable and sometimes it isn't. We don't live in an agricultural society, but I know in our house there were just certain things. When, when it turned from summer to fall or from spring to summer, there was something in my house growing up that we had to do, and we had to know where we were in the calendar to do it. I grew up in a little trailer. It did not have air conditioning. So for most of my childhood and my teenage years, my family of five lived in a tiny little trailer in the yard behind the little church that my dad pastored. And we decided 
it's just ridiculous to be this hot in this little trailer over the summer. So every spring and every summer, we had something that some of you won't even believe exists. It's called a window air conditioning unit. Have you seen these? Have you tried to carry one? Have you ever tried to put one in the window of a trailer before? Oh yeah, this was an all-family event. You have to open up the window, lift this heavy thing up in the window, and somebody in the house, whoever's the tallest other than dad, has to steady it there while dad takes his good old time putting a little foam around it and making sure it stays there. And then we had to get like a two-by-four cut to size to put underneath it because what we learned early on is that if you don't support the weight from the outside on a heavier one, it can go like this and pull the window right out of your trailer. So every spring... We had to go into the little shed and get, all, get out the two window air conditioning units, one for their little bedroom because they got their own, and then one that we put in the living room and hoped that it blew cold air down the hallway to where our bedrooms were. We knew every spring we had to put in the air conditioning, but every fall you wanted to get that thing out of the window before it got too cold because then all the cold air from the outside would kind of come in and you didn't need it there. So we knew in the calendar there was something that started every spring it was air conditioning season and every fall it was time to de-air condition the house. And we just kind of knew there was a beginning, there was an end of that season, right? You know, for, for, for me now it's like, okay, I'm, it's still like 90 degrees outside some days and leaves are falling in my yard. And I know that there's a certain window of time I have to get all the leaves out of the yard before snow snows on top of the leaves that fell. Because if you ever had leaves on the yard that snow fell on top of, it is like you could go off-roading in your backyard. There's just so much mud and nasty everywhere. But, but they tell, knowing where you are in your calendar, you know, if you have a swimming pool, you have other things you need to take care of. Sometimes just knowing when a season begins and when a season ends tells you what you should be doing in that window of time. There's a beginning and there's an end to it. And you have a certain amount of things you want to get done. If you garden, if you have a yard you take care of, there's, there's certain things you want to get done in that window of time. And if you live completely disconnected from an annual calendar, a seasonal calendar, and a weekly calendar, one thing I'll tell you is that unless you're in this very small group of people who are at a place in life where you can live without having to worry about any relationship with anybody, where you don't have to be anywhere at any specific time, where you have no bills that have to be paid on a certain date, where you can completely disconnect from the calendar of the world. If you're not that person, and you have no calendar, and no awareness of where you are in the week, in the month, or the year, you're going to have difficulty getting on in life. It is just simply not wise or practical to not know what time it is, what day it is, what month it is, what year it is. Calendars are important. What if I told you that God created a calendar for his people in the Old Testament? And that calendar still stands the test of time. And the calendar that God invented for his people in the Old Testament still has significance to us today. And it is so clear and so accurate and so uh, meaningful that if you understand that calendar, you can look on that calendar at any time and say, here's what season it is. Here's what I need to be doing with my life. Here's what I need to not be doing in my life. And it can tell you exactly where you are and what's supposed to be going on during that time and what that means about our relationship with God. And it can give you very clear instruction on how to live your life. That actually is the case. And everything about Acts chapter 2 spills out of understanding where they were in their calendar. What month it was, what holiday it was, what day it was, and what that meant to them. And if we can take just a couple moments and understand that, it will give you a, a, more, a more accurate understanding of how to interpret what actually happened on that day 2,000 years ago and then what significance it can still hold to us today. Let, can I show this to you? Let me show you just the seven feasts or the seven holidays on the Jewish calendar. It's just going to be up here on the screen, okay? Let me show you, uh, show you a couple of these things. God planned seven feasts, seven special days in the Jewish calendar, okay? The, why did God do that? Did he do it for random reasons? No, here's why. Listen. He picked these seven feasts. He gave them, uh, well, where are you drawing this information from, Pastor? In a book you've probably read 35, 45 times. Bestseller, Leviticus. I love Leviticus. I'm kind of a nerd that way. Leviticus gives us um, the form. Have you ever seen concrete being poured? Some of you have watched paint dry. Have you watched concrete dry? 
Okay, when the, okay you haven't, so let me try and explain it to you, concrete expert that I am. Um, when, when a tree fell in our house a couple years ago, um, I had to watch. I got to watch them do a lot of the rebuilding. And at one point, we, we had a, a deck put on the back of our house by some men from the church who were very skilled in that area. And they had to pour a concrete, just a little concrete, about the size of one of these stage sections, landing. So that when my boys came running down the steps, they had a soft place to land when they fell. Concrete pad, right? So what they did first was they built a form, very simple. It's a couple two-by-fours cut to size, nailed together at the corners, just like a rectangle. And they put that rectangle on the ground, and that marked the boundaries and the area that a pad was going to be poured into. Now, it wasn't the finished product, but it defined the area. It told us what it was for. We knew where it was going, and that form was there. And then eventually, kind of like pouring cake batter into a pan would have probably been, now that I think about it, the better example. But forget about that for a second. Concrete. They poured that concrete in there. And I'm sitting there because I am the opposite of handy, whatever that is. And I'm watching these people like they are modern day, you know, da Vinci's. They're pouring in there. They make it so smooth. And it just sits there until it hardens. And then they come back a week later. And once that pad is hardened, we don't need the form anymore. Okay? Now, you can keep, we could have kept the wood there, but we didn't need it. That form was set, and it knew where to go and fill its purpose and make a good foundation. And once that concrete was hard, we could you know, just cut away the wood and throw it out or recycle it or build it into some lovely, whatever you build with old concrete covered two-by-fours in the basement. We didn't need the form anymore. Could have kept it there, but we didn't need it. Okay? It wasn't necessary in order for us to have that foundation to land on. These feasts function like a form. A lot of the Old Testament you can read like it's a form. Okay? God was establishing boundaries and fences for his people. They needed to know how to live to stay in relationship with him. They needed to know if we stay inside the form, there's blessing here. If we stay inside the fence, this is the way God wants to live. However, if we ignore God and we go outside the form, we're not going to be made into what we think we are. Outside of there is danger. Outside of there is disaster. And so when you read through some of these feasts, We can see the form that God was creating, what he was trying to teach his people to do and to think and to feel. He wanted them to pause everything they were doing seven times of the year. He put seven events on their calendar. No matter what they were doing, he said it's important for you several times a year to pause what you're doing and think about the special relationship you have with me. And since I know you're humans and you're going to get distracted and might not be important, I'm going to assign you a calendar. And I'm going to tell you seven dates on the calendar that I want you to pause. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you why to do it. And the whole reason why is to make you think about seven different, unique, special aspects of our special relationship. And that's why they had these feasts. It made them take a break and engage in some different activities, each one of these feasts focus on a special characteristic of their relationship. So I can't see this one because the lights are here, so I'll look at this one. Um, I was going to say, don't mind my bald head, but it's bald the whole way around. Um, first, feast, first feast was Passover. Happened on the 14th. I won't go. I'll just tell you what they were. It was scheduled for the 14th day of the first month. Passover was all about the people remembering we have our identity in God's mighty acts of deliverance. And if you studied a lot about the Passover, you understand that this was a special feast and an event that was celebrated by every family where they remembered remembered back to the days of Egypt when they were slaves. They remember that God was about to send a death angel. And he warned everybody that unless the blood of the lamb is on your doorpost, the death angel will visit your house and will kill the firstborn of every house in Egypt. But he said, take a perfect lamb, slaughter it as an act of worship put the blood of that slaughtered lamb on the doorposts of your home and when the death angel passes by if that house is covered by the blood of the passover lamb the pascal lamb in hebrew if it's covered by the blood of that lamb the angel will pass over and death will not visit your home you will have salvation from death through the blood of a lamb and every single year they paused And they remembered, we have our identity because God delivered us from that. Through the blood of a lamb, we were delivered. And so part of their feast was reenacting some of these events. There would be the killing of a lamb. There would be all kinds of different things. I could go on and on and on. I won't. But that was the first feast. That was the beginning, the first feast in the calendar year. These happened in the spring. Their second feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, interestingly enough, Passover lasted for one day, the 14th day of the first month. 
The Feast of Unleavened Bread ran concurrently. It started the same day as the Feast of Passover, but it lasted for a week. So from the 14th to the 21st day of the first month, they also had the Feast or the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Now this brought out a different attribute of their relationship with God, and that is this. God's people are supposed to purge out from their life any contaminating influence. Leaven was something that spread throughout dough and made it rise. And God says leaven is an illustration of how sin and contamination works in the life of my people. And you need to be serious. If you leave even a little, a little bit of leaven in the whole house can reap great damage. And so what they would do during this week is they would call the, it was called the search for the leaven. And it was kind of a symbolic act, but from the, but a literal part of it too, from top to bottom, the house was cleaned, dusted, and they would literally and figuratively go through their entire home and any amount of leaven had to be removed and thrown out. Now, why? Because a little bit of yeast was going to ruin their life? No, it's because of what it symbolized. They were supposed to remember that as God's people are holy. And because we're human, we always have to be on the lookout for any contaminating thought or influence of our life. And it shouldn't be tolerated, it should be removed. They even did uh, these little acts where late at night, the, the, the man of the house would light the candle and they would do the search for the leaven. And they would symbolically take a light through a dark house, shining the light everywhere there was darkness, looking for sin. You see the, the beauty and some of these feasts, this was something they were supposed to do regularly. To remember, we're supposed to be holy. Uh, third feast, Feast of First Fruits. Um, this happened later on uh, in the spring. It actually, ha- well, actually, it happened uh, the second day after Passover. So you had Passover one day, and then a second day you had the Feast of First Fruits. And just simply like it was, this was basically an agricultural feast. What would happen is at sunrise on First Fruits, the high priest would go out, to, uh, go out with some of his uh, henchmen or whatever, some of his people that would do chores for him. He'd take them out and they would go into the fields of the people and they would have already marked out where the very first crop that was already planted had come up through the ground. So whichever one came up first was that maturity on the Feast of first fruits, And that would have been marked the night before and they cut it down, whether it was wheat or barley, and they brought that very first fruit. Nothing, according to their law, nothing else was allowed to be harvested or eaten until after the offering of first fruits took place. So the high priest would cut down, have his people cut down the very first crop. They would bring it right from there into the temple, and they would wave it before the Lord as an offering of thanksgiving. Now, what was going on here? A couple things. It had a spiritual significance, and it had a, a physical significance. Spiritually, they're showing this. Uh, God commanded this. He said, I want you to always remember that the first of everything belongs to me. The first crop, the first child, it all belongs, that belongs to me. And so they would bring that to the Lord to say, God, we recognize that this is the very first and the very best. We will not feed ourselves, and we will not harvest for ourselves until we have first honored you with our first. This is a principle, a financial principle that is affirmed all throughout the New Testament. The first belongs to God and is brought as an act of worship. But then the physical significance was it says, okay, now that God has, has, now that we've offered this to the Lord, God says, now it is okay and encouraged for everybody to go to work in the harvest. Cut down the wheat, cut down the food, make yourselves food, eat, nourish. You can do it without, without any hesitation or any fear whatsoever. So it indicated it's harvest time, harvest can begin, and we, we can get to work now. And that went up until feast number four, Feast of Pentecost. Feast of Pentecost, pente means 50. It happened 50 days after Passover. So first fruits was the beginning of the harvest. Guess what Pentecost marked? At the very end of the day of Pentecost, at sundown on Pentecost, harvest was over. No more harvesting. Season of harvest is over. So what they did on Pentecost, now this will mess you up if you understood unleavened bread. Here's what they did on Pentecost. They also brought an offering to the temple. Now what did they bring on first fruits? They brought the first raw, uncooked, unbaked, unrecipied crops. You know what he says they're supposed to bring for an offering on Pentecost? Two baked loaves of bread with leaven inside. Now that's weird. It's the only feast that they have where Leviticus specifies the offering you bring that day, bring it with leaven inside. Now what did leaven represent? Contaminating thoughts in their raw form. Now they're bringing bread, which has been made from the combination of something that God gave them 
supernaturally when worked together with yeast, that is what we produce naturally, and they're to bring those two loaves as an offering at Pentecost to one symbolize season is over, no more harvesting, plow the fields, burn up the chaff, it's all done. But also, God, here is the fruit of our labor. We've been working for the last 50 days, and God says, I want what would please my heart is if you bring to me an offering that shows, God, here's what we've done in your harvest field for these last 50 days. And what we've done is we have combined what you gave us with what we had already, and something happened, we brought them together, and we present it to you, and you accept it. Are you thinking ahead of me a little bit? If you're not, I'll spell it out in one second, okay? And then the last two, uh, last three. Then there's a space of four months with no, with no celebrations in their year. Then you have uh, five, six, and seven. You have uh, the Feast of Trumpets, which all I'll say about that because I'm running out of time here. I knew I was going to nerd out here, and I told myself all week not to do this. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not, I'm, no, I'm, I'm not sorry. This is important. But the Feast of Trumpets was just simply this. It was a big, joyful party. And they would blow all these trumpets. Think ahead with me, okay? Blow all the trumpets and summon the people together for a great, joy-filled party together with your whole Jewish family. So there's a feast of trumpets. Feast number six is Yom Kippur. Now this is the heaviest one out of all of them. The Day of Atonement. And this was a deep work of cleansing and repentance that had to be done specifically in the house of Israel and God's people. And then feast number seven is kind of a weird one. The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles was the last one in their calendar. Now this one was interesting. They would actually go together with friends or family outside of their homes. They would build these temporary canopies or tents or shelters, little tabernacles. And they would just tabernacle together for a while. Kind of just saying, you know what, we're part of God's family. We're brothers and sisters. And God has always wanted to dwell under a tent together with his people. Not be separated from them, but to dwell with them in the same tent. Now, in their reality, God's presence was in the tent, not with them. If they went in the tent with God in the Old Testament, not prepared, you know what happened? They died, and it happened. But they believed in this promise that that someday what God really wants, what they remind themselves is he wants to tabernacle together with us. And so we're going to have this festival where as we're under, as we're enjoying the unique friendship and fellowship that comes by just being camping together, and some of you do this regularly, and you just know it's like you become, you, you just really bond on those types. Some of you don't like camping. You like glamping, or you like, to, you know, I'll go pay for the luxury cabin in the woods with the blah, 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 blah. I don't want to be in a tent. But this was a big thing to them. So those were the seven feasts of their calendar. Pastor, this has nothing to do with Acts 2. It has everything to do with Acts 2. Can I show you now briefly the New Testament connection to all of these feasts? Because you're thinking, Pastor, I'm not Jewish. I don't celebrate these feasts. Or you might be thinking, Pastor, I'm not Jewish. Should I be celebrating these feasts? What I want to show you is that even though some of you may not be Jewish, you are probably still celebrating these feasts perpetually in your heart. Okay, let me show you. Um, so in the Old Testament, we have the festival of the, pa- festival of the Passover. It says, and they're remembering God has delivered us. Now in the New Testament, Christ has become our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verse 20, the Apostle Paul shows us, he says, Jesus Christ has now become our Passover lamb. What does that mean? When Jesus' blood was shed, he became our Paschal lamb. The Old Testament says we are saved by the blood of the Paschal lamb applied to the doorposts of our house. When the angel of death comes, they will pass over us and they will not die. We will live. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ becomes our Paschal lamb. He has become the lamb whose blood when it's shed to the doorposts of our heart means that now we have life in Jesus and that death angel will never separate us from the everlasting presence of Almighty God. And every time somebody accepts Jesus Christ, they put their trust in him, they put their faith in him, and they are reminded and they are thankful and they are grateful for the blood of Jesus being applied to their life. They are now not just relegating the spirit of Passover to one day in the calendar. We are celebrating the meaning of Passover forever. We no longer need the form. You can have the form. There's meaning in the form. But we don't have to have a festival anymore to remind ourselves of this. You can live with the reality of Passover in your heart perpetually. It's been fulfilled already. There's nothing more God needs to do to fulfill that first feast. The second feast was purging of the leaven. 
And in the Old Testament, it meant let's rid our house of all contaminating influences of leaven. In the New Testament, Paul, again, I told you the Bible will be its own interpreter. Paul breaks this down very simply, again, in 1 Corinthians. He says, he says to New Testament believers, you need to continue purging out the leaven in your own hearts. Now we're not purging out the leaven from under the bed. We're purging out the leaven from our hearts. What Paul, what Paul is saying is this, is now through the power of the Holy Spirit alive inside of you, you have the built-in presence of God living in you to detect contaminating influences and that God's New Testament people are also to understand we're called to be holy and the way that we chase after God and the way that we draw near Him and the way you become holy is by doing an ever, uh, a, a, a diligent, constant, forensic inspection of your heart, your feelings, your thoughts, your attitudes, your behaviors, and saying to God, show me where the leaven is and through your spirit, pull it out of me. So every time you pause and let God examine your heart and say, is there anything that doesn't please you? You are honoring and celebrating the purging of the leaven. You're honoring and celebrating something God put in place with his people, but you can do it perpetually. In your heart, it's been fulfilled. That holiday on the calendar is ongoing and alive, but it's been fulfilled. The third feast was the, was the feast of first fruits. In the Old Testament, it said the very first belongs to God. And we cannot start harvesting or following in that activity until the first has been offered to God. Here's what Paul said. This is crazy. Here's what Paul says in the New Testament to interpret this for us. He says it again, 1 Corinthians, I think it's 15. 15, uh, somewhere between 7 and 20. I have it in my notes. I don't have time to look for it. But it's in 1 Corinthians 15. If you read it, you'll find it. He says, Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, became a type of first fruit offering from all creation. What does that mean? If you do the math, first fruits fell on resurrection day. The second day, you had Passover. Jesus dies before Jesus dies. You, you have Jesus dies before sundown. Then you have, you have O'Day. You have the second day, you have resurrection. Jesus' resurrection day fell on the Jewish calendar of first fruits. Here's what actually happened the day Jesus rose. As the sun comes up and some part of Jerusalem, the high priest is putting the sickle to the first crop and cutting it down to bring as an offering in the temple. And at the same time, in another place, there's a stone being removed from a grave while Jesus rises and Paul says what he's doing is he's becoming our first fruit offering. What he's saying is, I am the first to raise from the dead. And now everybody who follows me has the right and the privilege to now expect that they can participate in the same activity I just did. So that all of my followers know they can also, through trusting in me, putting their faith in me, they will also be able to rise from the dead. So there's a, there's a spiritual significance here. What Jesus is saying is, until he rose from the dead, nobody had any right to expect to be able to do the same thing. But now that he has, everybody past who had put their faith in him and everybody in the future who put their faith in him has the right to expect that we can join him in the same activity. He became a first fruit offering. The second thing he did was he was symbolizing a great change in the purpose of his followers. It was, now he's saying, it is time for harvest to begin. A harvest of what? A harvest of who? The New Testament spells it out many different times. A harvest of people for the glory of God. He's saying it's time for it to begin. Now, New Testament, Old Testament, sorry, Pentecost. It says it's time to be gathering the harvest of produce until, the produce until this day is over. Now, here's the beautiful part to me. In fact, you could end the sermon right here and at the pace that I'm going. I might have to. I'm sorry. Um, here's what he's showing in the New Testament. What happens in Acts chapter 2, at the very beginning, it says, the, the, the literal reading of the Greek says this. When the day of Pentecost was filling up, some translations say when it had come, when it arrived, when it had fully come, whatever. The literal Greek reading is when the day of Pentecost was filling up. In other words... Harvest hadn't ended yet. The day wasn't over, but the day was upon them. It was ongoing. They were still filling up the crops. They're still getting the harvest together. Here's what we're seeing now in the New Testament, and we see this in Acts chapter 2. What God is showing us is that he is still about the work of gathering a harvest of people from every tongue, every tribe, every language group, every nation. He's about the process of gathering a harvest of people 
to himself through the work of the laborers in the field who are his church. And at Pentecost, what actually happens is God says to his followers, it is time for you to go. I'm giving you power to go throughout your community, your neighborhood, the city block, the world, and tell people everywhere about the good news of the kingdom of God. And everybody who receives that becomes a harvest, the fruit of your labor. And they are people who I love, who are still sinful and producing sin, but when your sinful, leaven-filled life comes into submission to the Lord, he bakes it together somehow, and it's still an offering that he'll receive. Do you see this? But it's important that he tells us in the calendar, this happens not at the end of the day, but at the beginning of the day. Because what I see as I study it through this time is that the day of Pentecost is the era of the calendar where we're currently living. Why? Because I'll show you in a moment. The next three feasts, we're still waiting on the New Testament fulfillment of them to come. We are somewhere in this part of God's calendar that says, what should we be doing? We should be getting right with Jesus. We should be purging leaven from our heart. We should be celebrating the blood-covered lives that we live hidden in Jesus Christ. And we should be working in the harvest field to produce not for ourselves but for God a harvest of souls for his kingdom. Because the harvest may continue until the day of Pentecost ends. And when the day of Pentecost ends, the harvest is over. And so Jesus is not giving them power to show that the day is over. He's giving them power so they can accomplish the work of harvesting souls in the field for him. You see that? Okay, no response. Great, good job, teacher. All right, next, next three. I will spend all afternoon telling myself it was clearer than you made me think it was. Old Testament, uh, great day of joy in the Feast of Testament. New Testament, we believe it's describing Christ's return. When the trump will sound and we'll all come together with great joy. That's what they're supposed to remember. There's going to be a day when, hey, when we hear the trumpets, we know the Feast of Trumpets can begin. We're all going to come together. Trumpet sounds. There'll be a great meeting together. Everybody will be caught up with him in the air. I don't know how that all works. There's another whole 37 opinions on that. But suffice it to say, there is a day when life as we know it here on the earth will end. The trump, literal figurative, I don't know, will sound. And we'll be caught up with Jesus. At that time, I won't care what the trumpet sounds like, who blew it. Once I'm in the presence of Jesus, nothing else is going to matter. That's going to be good enough for me. All these people say, well, I want to know, you know, what kind of house am I going to have in heaven? You're missing it. Jesus is enough. Well, that doesn't sound like enough, then you don't know him. If I have to sell you on a better version of what you have here now, you still don't understand what Jesus has to offer. You know, if you can earn enough money, you can have a lot of what you think heaven is here. Why would God just give you that in heaven? You get him. You get him. Forever. In a new body with hair and muscle. I don't know. I don't know. Feast of trumpets. I don't believe that's happened yet. Or else, what does that say about me? But I don't believe it happened yet. Um, uh, in the Old Testament, you have the Day of the Atonement, the deep cleansing of the house of Israel. In the New Testament, this is referred to in Zechariah 14 and again in Revelation, that somewhere in this end-time chain of events, that there is a deep cleansing of the house of Israel when they do receive Jesus as their Messiah, and they follow him, and they see him return, and he is the long-awaited Messiah, and they follow him. The last one, in the, I love this one. I love this one. The Old Testament, they tabernacle together in, in shelters. I'll, I'll read it to you. Revelation uh, 21. If I can find it in my Bible here, and then if I can see, it would even be better. So in Revelation chapter 21, so just know this is very near the end of the book. This is like paragraphs away from the very end. Um, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. John is doing the best he can to put words to something he's never seen before, none of us have ever seen. But he's describing this new kingdom, descent, this thing we've all been waiting to live in. He's describing it come to be right before his very eyes. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God's tabernacle is now among his people. He will tabernacle with them, and they will tabernacle with him. Isn't it beautiful that the last feast he gave them in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the kingdom of God? He says specifically, we're going to have an eternal booth festival. I'm going to tabernacle with you, and you're going to tabernacle with me. So where are we in God's calendar? We're in that era of Pentecost. What does it tell us we should be doing? We went over that. 
We should be telling people everywhere about the good news of God's kingdom. We should be doing a relentless search with the Holy Spirit of purging out leaven from our hearts. We should be doing all these different things. Because at some point, suddenly, the end of the harvest is going to come. And at that point, there will be no more harvesting. And the New Testament spells that out clearly for us. There is a day where this time of harvest comes to an end in a time of judgment. Separating of the chaff. The burning of the crops, the tilling of the field. The more you dig into the agriculture, you understand, yes, it's something practical, but there's a spiritual significance tied to all of it. I'm not an expert in it, but these are the broad brush strokes. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. I can find it here. I'm just going to stick to this. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, it's very important words. On the daytime, the beginning of the day of Pentecost. You see? So what's the big idea you're driving at, Pastor? This will make sense now. In fact, I probably don't even need to preach this. You can chew on this. Um, Let me show you the big idea real quick. What do we do with the events of this day? Let me put it up on the screen for me. The original upper room experience of the Christians at Pentecost. Watch my language carefully here. What's Luke trying to tell us? It's not an event for duplication, but it's a reality for perpetuation. In other words, God's not saying that what we need to do as Echo Community Church is gather 100% of the voting members in one room, lock the doors, and stay there until wind fills it, fire sits on our heads, we all speak in other tongues, and then we leave and find 15 people groups that we can speak to spontaneously in languages that we never learned or understood until such point as they ask enough questions for one of us to speak in their native language, preach preach a great message, and then 3,000 of them will get saved. If we had to duplicate this, that's what would be required. To duplicate event means it's a photocopy. It means everything that you read about happening you know, because some people say, well, I believe this should be duplicated. That should be duplicated. We'll, we'll parse that out. In fact, I might have to cut this into two parts and readjust my teaching schedule later. I probably will because this is more than enough to chew on for today. Um, just thinking while I'm talking, which is probably a thing you should encourage me to do. Um, but you understand what I'm saying. I think a lot of how you interpret this passage says, okay, Because most of us start this way. I want to understand what the Bible says, and I want to do what God tells me to do. I want to live the way he wants me to live. Isn't that where most of us start? I'm thinking about this because I'm thinking, I'm going to learn something about how I should be be living. I'm either going to get a pat on the back because I'm going in the right direction or some correction because I'm not. And so you read about an event where at this point, um, there's how many people here? What's he say? Talk to me. How many people are gathered in uh, this room? About 120. I don't know, 118, 122, he says it's about 120. Here's what they have in common at this point. They are all saved. Prove it to me, Pastor. Glad you asked. John 20, 25. Before Jesus went to heaven, he has this experience. With, this is already going to mess with some of you who think I'm not being Pentecostal here. I promise you I am. Okay? In fact, I'm backed up by J. Roswell Flower on this one, one of the founders of the assemblies. John 20, 25, before Jesus goes to heaven, after he raises from the dead, he meets with the apostles, and he breathes on them and says what? Receive the Holy Spirit. And they received him. These people at Pentecost are not two-thirds full. They've not just had a relationship with God the Father and put their trust in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is hovering around in outer space somewhere. They have received the Holy Spirit as part of their salvation experience. We have different moments where some of the apostles we see, that was a big uh, conversion experience. You have a story where uh, Thomas has a conversion experience. He sees the proof of Jesus' resurrection. He accepts the report of the apostles, and he says, you are now my Lord and my God. And he says, blessed are you because now you've believed. In other words, you're saved. And then there's some more he talks about. We have his experience there. You have other times later on in Acts, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where it indicates that part of the salvation experience is that you, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where you, when you, Put your trust in Jesus. You surrender control of your life. You repent of your sins. You receive salvation. And part of that is that you receive the Spirit of God. He 
breathes the pneuma Greek, the ruach, the Hebrew. The word for wind and spirit are synonymous. It's the same word in their language. There's no differentiation. Wind and spirit mean the same thing, same word. It's like God, the same way at creation, breathed into Adam and breathed into Eve. He breathes his spirit into us. And this is something that was unique to everybody who's been saved that the Jewish people pre-Jesus did not have. They did not have the spirit of God dwelling within them. Different times in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God descended upon someone like he did on Joshua for a specific time and purpose, but he didn't come and live inside of them. And now Paul says, like we sang about this morning, the Holy Spirit, like if you ever watch that show, Magician's Secrets Revealed, and they show you the trick, and then they show you the behind the scenes, how they did it. God actually shows us through Paul how he did the resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't a magic trick. The whole, he sent the Holy Spirit who specializes in bringing power and life into dead things. And he sent the Holy Spirit to Jesus' body and his mortal body was quickened and brought back to life. And he says that same spirit that did that lives in you. Now why don't you live like you know that that lives in you? How can you look at yourself in the mirror and say, you're too fat, you're too skinny, you're ugly, you're a failure, you're, you're an idiot. Why did you say that? Why did you do this? Why would you speak to yourself that way if that spirit lives inside of you? You see, these 120, they already had the Holy Spirit living in them. They had received the Holy Spirit. They are not deficient in terms of this. Okay? It's not like they were incomplete in terms of the Spirit living inside of them. But yet we see here an experience that they had together in these few verses. It has some strange stuff in it. Some of these things only ever happened once in all of history that we have a recording for. And for the skeptical, even Josephus or Josephus, or some of you pronounce it that way, and his, and his, he was a historian of Jewish, he was, he was a Jewish historian, did not believe Jesus was the Son of God, but his writings have survived and they run parallel to this time. And he even writes that on this Feast of Pentecost, on this particular one, there were reports of earthquakes and same sounds coming from near the temple. It's crazy. Luke's not exaggerating. But there's so much going on here. I want you to see that their experience, at least in Acts chapter 2, was distinct from what happened when they were saved. It wasn't the same thing. It was distinct from. Well, Pastor, I'm confused about the terminology. I see baptism with the Holy Spirit spoken twice by Jesus. I'm reading filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm reading received Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter, when he preaches in a couple minutes, is going to say the Holy Spirit is being poured out on us. I hear other people like Paul talking about walking in the Spirit. Which word is right? Is he talking about a baptism, a filling, an outpouring? We need to like, you know, like, Name it and claim it here. We need, to, we need to stick it and keep it. We need to pick a term. And there's lots of debate on this. Here's my take. Why do we need one term? Could this possibly be a multifaceted experience when the dynamic is poured into a finite thing like me and maybe in some occasions this is an outpouring and in some cases it's a filling or an overflowing and in other cases, it, how do you get, is God really hung up on us getting one vocabulary word to describe something that by its very nature is supernatural and dynamic? Could it just be a multifaceted dimension of all these things that maybe has different facets and has different unique things that are unique to individuals with some common elements? Couldn't it be that? In fact, isn't that more infinite? Isn't that more like God to say, you know what? I feel like God sits up in heaven as we study this verse and he goes, silly people. You know, you really think I'm trying to give you a formula here? You read all this and you're saying, you know what? God's giving us a cryptic formula. We're going to crack the code. And one person thinks they cracked it. And they said, I've got it. And everybody has to crack it my way. And what you see is there's never again a mighty rushing of wind like this shown in the New Testament. There's never again quasi-fire. It wasn't real fire. They wouldn't have lived to tell the story. Hello? If he really sends. And what it was is so something like fire appears in the room. Here's another thing. When does it happen? It says Suddenly. Here's another one of my favorite parts. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says, It happened suddenly. What does sudden mean? It means they weren't expecting it to happen at the moment it did. Now, when I grew up, it says, Here's how you get this experience. You come down front, 
You tarry, you beg, you plead, you ask, you ask, you ask, you ask, you wait, you ask, you ask, you ask. And when all conditions are right, boom, you get it. And what do we mean by it? You start speaking in a language you've never understood and you haven't learned. And now you've got it and that's the experience. And we've got a lot of ingredients that are in the soup in that picture we just painted, but we've completely missed the forest for the trees. Jesus didn't say, go to Jerusalem and wait for a language. He said, go wait for me. And over these 10 days, what are they doing? Sometimes they're praying. Sometimes they're, we don't know what they're doing. All we know is that it happened while they were seated. And when they prayed, they stood or they laid on their face. They didn't sit and pray. They found that offensive to God. They're probably not in prayer. Nor, nor is Luke showing us that they prayed and prayed and prayed and asked, and that was the cause. And God's response was he gave in and gave it to them. It happened on a day and a time that God sovereignly chose to pour out his spirit upon that group of 120 in that moment. And it happened suddenly when they weren't expected. They were generally expecting God to do something, but maybe not in that moment. Then one person hears it and says, well, then it's out of order for us to ever have people come down front and have someone lay hands on them for them to receive some type of experience from the Holy Spirit until you get to Acts chapter 8 or Acts chapter 19 when Peter and John were talking to two different groups of people and they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Well, now wait, Pastor, what is it? Does God pour out His Spirit when we're not expecting it or when we ask for it? Yes. <laughs> Well, on three of these occasions of the four occasions in the New Testament where it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and there was evidence, three of the times it says they spoke in other tongues and one time it says this in chapter eight. You can read it this week. It's your homework. We'll pick up here next week. The only way, I can't hurry this to an end. This is too important. So I'll just cut it and I'll, teaching calendars are great, but I'll just push everything down a week. Will you all survive? Okay, if, if not, I'm making an executive decision. You don't have a choice. We'll pick up here next week because I don't want to shortchange this. I'm just trying, what I'm trying to do is create hunger and appetite in you to say, you know what? I'm hungry for something more than what I'm experiencing with the Holy Spirit, and I want you to just explore that this week, however God's calling you into this. Um, so like Acts chapter 8, and Acts, in Acts chapter 8, Peter and John are called into a situation where they find out some Samaritans are getting saved, which is crazy because there was deep racism between the Jews and the Samaritans. You want to talk, I mean, it's worse than white and black in America, or probably about as bad at its worst, hated each other, deep centuries of racial hatred. And if, you're not, if you want more detail on that, you can go back. There's numbers of sermons where we brought this out. So Peter and John, as Christian, they're Jews by ethnicity, Christians now by faith, they hear Samaritans are getting saved, and they go into Samaria, and they're saying, well, have you received the Holy Spirit? They're like, well, what is that? They lay hands on them. They pray for them. Acts chapter 8 says, and they received the Holy Spirit. Doesn't say they spoke in tongues. Next verse. When Simon the sorcerer saw that they had received the Spirit, saw with his eyes that they had received the Spirit, he said, can I buy that? Now let me pause for a second. Boy, okay, I don't want to lose my credentials. Let me just get this right as close as I can get it. In my, I'm less concerned about losing my credentials. I'm more concerned about being accurate. In the assemblies of God, there is this line of thinking that the way we interpret is tongues for today. We say, well, every time in the New Testament, the four occasions where someone was filled with the Spirit. I actually did the math on this this week. I, I have my notebook up here. I'll show you next week. I actually went through every name, of, every name mentioned in Acts. How many of them were saved? Of the ones who were saved, how many do we know for sure they were baptized in the Holy Spirit? Of them, how many are we not sure? How many got, like Paul says he was saved, doesn't tell us in Acts he was filled with the Spirit. He tells us in Corinthians. I did all the math. I'm trying to figure out, is this always 100% of the time? Is this never 0% of the time? Is it sometimes 1% to 50% of the time, or is this usually 51 to 99% of the time? Because the Assemblies of God old writing says there's only four possibilities. Tongues are for always, for never, for sometimes, or usually. My answer is it's none of those. We can eliminate always and never. Sometimes and usually doesn't matter. I'll get there next week. Show it to you. But in Acts chapter 8, it says he saw it. And we say, well, let's assume because in the, uh, as somebody God said, let's assume that because in the other three occasions there was always tongues. Let's assume that in that occasion, even though Luke doesn't say it, let's assume because Simon saw something to indicate that they had received it, that it was tongues. Is it possible it was tongues? Yes. Is it possible it wasn't? Yes. 
We don't know, and I don't want to build theology off an assumption. Here's what I can say. And nowhere is it that, you know, tongues is not discouraged until we get to Paul, and he discourages it in specific contexts. In fact, Paul says this. Here's the verse we don't talk about, couldn't find it in any of our books. 1 Corinthians 14. And people on both sides of the argument go here. Here's what I love that Paul says. He's correcting the church for when they get together in their little house group of 50 people, speaking in tongues all at the same time, and then visitors come in, and they're like, what are they doing? I don't understand what they're saying, and they leave. And Paul's like, you've missed out. The, the, when you come together, the point is to build up believers and to be assigned to the unbelievers. You're missing it. Here's this key verse in 1 Corinthians 14. He says this, I wish that you all would speak in tongues, but more so that you all would prophesy. What is he saying? First of all, he says, I wish you all would speak in tongues. You know what that means? Some of the believers were saved, but didn't. And some did. Some of them, because he talked about it in 1 Corinthians, he says, you all have something the Spirit has given you. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing, blah, blah, blah. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I wish you'd all speak in tongues. In other words, he's saying it's a, it's a good thing. I'm not forbidding it. But since you don't, there's something even more that I'd like you to seek than tongues. And that's prophecy because you don't need an interpreter. It's just much more practical. What's he saying? Is it sometimes? Is it usually? I don't know. Does it matter? What really matters? 1 Corinthians 12 says this. How do I get it? How do I know? The Holy Spirit gives people what he wants, however he wants, when he wants. And why can't we come to a place where we say, you know what? If for this sister, God has given her through the Spirit the ability to speak in a language that she doesn't understand, and she hasn't learned, but he's given it to her to help her some way in her life get out into the harvest field and do her work. Why can't I look at that and say, go for it, sister? And maybe in my life, he's given me the ability to teach. Or he's given me the ability to have compassion and mercy. And he gave it to me through the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit decided to give it to me. When he wanted, how he wanted. Whether someone laid hands on me, whether it happened when I was expecting it or not expecting it. One time Peter is teaching in the middle of a sermon, it says the Holy Spirit fell on people and they received the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. It can happen in a church service. Not trying, maybe it's not a formula God's giving you. Maybe he's just saying, I am so big and so broad and so wide. I have more to give you even than just being saved. As great as it is, there's more I'm willing to give you. But what I'm willing to give you is not something that should ever divide the church. It was supposed to unify them. Do you understand? When they heard people speaking in tongues, what it said was, you 15 people groups that used to be enemies or that used to live apart, you're now all part of the same family. When they went and they spoke and they laid hands on the Galileans and, 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 and the people with Cornelius' house, they laid hands, or they, they laid hands on them. They, or I'm sorry, it wasn't laid hands. Peter spoke. First Corinthians, or uh, Acts chapter 10. Peter was teaching, and, and Cornelius and his compadres who had received Jesus, in the middle of the teaching, the Holy Spirit falls on them. They speak in tongues. The people that came with Peter are watching these racial outsiders speaking in the same spirit that they had, and it says they were amazed. They were amazed that God cared enough about these people I hate racially that the same spirit that lives in me lives in them and they accepted them. In one moment, deep racial reconciliation took place through the Holy Spirit. This is what God's trying to get across at Pentecost, not just to divide the church over whether we should have tongues or not tongues. He sent it to unify His people, not to divide us. I know we live in a day and age where we want everything to be bite-sized, tweetable pieces. But the answer is not just as simple as is tongues for today or not for today. In fact, that's not even one of the top hundred questions I think God wants us to be asking about this passage where he would have been more clear. What he's saying is, uh, it is the time of Pentecost. It's the time when my church should be white hot in their core about telling other people about the good news of the kingdom. Because you're not naturally that way, I will pour out my spirit upon you and I will give you the power. Power simply means the ability to do. I will give you an ability to do that exceeds your native capabilities in order for you to go out with great enthusiasm, great boldness. Now those things are every time you see the Holy Spirit poured out. You see enthusiasm. You see boldness. You see conversions. You see a change, in, uh, a change in general disposition. You see change in priorities. You see these things accompanying the Holy Spirit as he's doing his work through the New Testament. That's what can be perpetuated. Let me pray for you. I'm totally out of breath, okay? Let me pray for you. Hallelujah, Jesus. We worship you. I lift you on high.
God, I totally didn't get through the message today, but I am confident that this is the, I started where you wanted me to stop, started where you wanted me to start, and ended where you wanted me to finish. I believe in this moment you are drawing people to you. I believe the power of your word opened up today is acting, it is active on the hearts of these listeners. And so Jesus, for anybody that is here this morning that is feeling that drawing near to them, I pray that in this moment you release to us the courage to say yes. Yes, I will follow you, Holy Spirit. Yes, I want to experience you. I don't want to throw away all the reality of my current experience up to this point. For some people in the room, this is an endorsement of what you haven't recognized is that you have probably throughout your life had moments where God has poured his spirit out on you, but you didn't recognize what it was at the time it was happening. And God is saying, take that, use that, develop that, run with that. That is my spirit alive and at work in you to empower you to do the mission of working in the harvest field. For those of you that have received an experience of, of, of where you do speak in other tongues, and that is something that God has poured into your life, I encourage you not just to practice it, but to understand it. What is it for? What is it not for? How can I use it and not abuse it? What, what, how am I to be putting that in a place in my life in order to help me accomplish my mission? Not to look up or down on others who haven't had your same experience, but to take what God has given you and understand it in its fullness and in its form and deploy it in whatever way that God is calling you to deploy it knowing that there are boundaries and forms for us to understand with how all of the gifts operate. And friend, if you're here today and you are not sure if you've even had that experience that, that Jesus talked about with his disciples where they put their trust in him and he breathed on them and they received his spirit, that is available to you right here, right now. If you will admit that you are a sinner, if you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you believe he was your Passover lamb, that his blood applied to the doorposts of your heart, cover you under him and that you will choose him to be your lord and savior that you will align your entire life in submission to him friend salvation is is here for you today and if that's what you want all you need to do is make a simple prayer of confession that goes something like this dear jesus i admit i'm a sinner but i believe in you and i believe you have saved me you can save me you want to save me you will save me i believe that you can do that because you lived a sinless life You died becoming a type of a Passover lamb. You died on the cross for me. Your blood that you spilled that day, please apply it to the doorposts of my heart. Send your spirit to me now, and I receive your spirit to come and make his home inside of me. I believe in your resurrection, and it gives me the hope that I too will resurrect out of this human body that at some point will be exhausted and die. And I'll be given a new glorious body and it will behave and live together with you in heaven forever. And I choose to surrender my life to your lordship. I will study the truth of your word and apply it to my heart. I will follow in your ways. In your precious name I pray, amen.